These are Grindstaff Publishing audio files. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Grindstaff Publishing podcast. Um, it is December 12th, uh, about 9 o'clock at night. Just finished um, editing all of the uh, Chapter 15 France from the Room to Rome. It took a little while, a lot, lot, lot longer than I thought. And here's a technical note. Um, that was by far the worst editing I've had to do in this whole endeavor of making an audiobook. Um, if you're not feeling up to snuff when you're recording something like an audiobook, take a break. Um, I, I just kind of used my, my bullheadedness and I was like, no, I'm just going to finish this damn thing, you know, hell or high water. And I just messed up, messed up, messed up, got it, messed up, messed up, messed up. But, but what happens is, is that the more you mess up, that just, that is like, creates so much of a mess in the you know post-production I guess as the editing goes so um, I probably should have just recorded that thing but the audio sounded good um, it just was rough when you uh, actually look at how much time it takes to edit that kind of audio but anyway kind of behind the scenes thing but it's done it's recorded it's nine o'clock at night um, I'm exhausted but I made a schedule today because um, what two days ago or yesterday or something like that I figured out that I could, uh, I could conceivably get this entire audiobook completed, done, and submitted for, um, uh, I guess, publication um, by Amazon ACX. So by by the by the thirty first, and so I have like six chapters, seven chapters left in, in the in the um, novel to read. So I made a rigorous, exhausting schedule, um, and I think I think I can do it. So. I put it on some social media stuff, so if you want to take a look at the schedule and how ridiculous it is, it is a—it's uh, a lot, but I think I can do it. As for the task at hand, um, this podcast or this episode is all about the France discussion. France is big; it's a beautiful country. Everyone knows France and everything about France, like the Paris scene. Um, but my journey in France started in Toulouse, so from the the, the last discussion. Um, I found myself, or I guess we find me in, uh, November 13th, 2015, um, in Spain. And so, uh, when I got back from, from the day of just like, you know, bouncing around Pamplona, I get back and there's some people watching the news really intently and, um, they're watching the Paris terrorist attacks. Um, that day was really rough because as tourists or as travelers, traveling tourists, we uh, have to watch the news and be up to date on the news, especially when times of, in times of turmoil, because things like the Paris terrorist attacks um, happen, and then there are political moves that happen afterwards. And so one of the, one of the political moves that happened after that um, was basically France closed the border. And so we were all sitting there, and um, two, two of the girls had just came from France, and they were going south. A couple of Danish guys were, um, were doing the Camino de Santiago, um, and then I was heading into Toulouse the next day. And so I didn't know what to expect. I was hoping everything would, would work out fine, and um, but I didn't know. 
And so I woke up the next morning in Pamplona and I went and bought a ticket, a bus ticket up to Toulouse, which is in the south of France. And um, I hoped, just hoped to God that I could actually make it into France. I didn't, I didn't know what a, what a border closure was. And so um, I bought the ticket, they sold it to me. So I assumed I was good. Um, I kind of filled around a little bit and then I found myself on a bus to Toulouse. And um, I, I remember vividly being so afraid that we would be on the bus and then all of a sudden they would just turn around at the border and be like, oh, sorry, we can't go in, which is pretty unlikely, you know, with the economics and the, you know, the bus schedule. But still, it seemed like a thing that could actually happen where it's like, oh, well, we might try to go and then we get there and then it's like, sorry, you can't be here. So but luckily we passed, passed into France with no issue. Um, there wasn't even a border check, actually. We just went right through. Um, I met this really cool Canadian guy, a younger guy, probably like 22 on, on the bus. Um, and I was sitting there listening to um, country music in my head, in my earbuds. And, um, he turned around and, and introduced himself. I can't remember what his name was, um, or is now, but like Ben or something like that. And, um, and he, he was a huge metalhead, which is funny because he like this, this nerdy kind of pudgy, you know, peach fuzz guy, which is really cool. Um, but it's like, I didn't, never pegged him for being a metalhead, but he was super into metal. I'm not into metal at all. Um, so we kind of debated a little bit about country versus metal and that was funny. Um, but we, we, we became pretty fast friends and the bus stopped in Toulouse and we got off like, Oh, where are you heading? I'm going here. Oh, where are you heading? I'm going there too. And it turned out we were roommates at the same hostel. So we got there in the early evening and then got to our hostel, you know, early evening. And then we're like, okay, well, let's get some food. We kept hanging out. He's a really cool dude. So we get, we had I found some pizza and then we uh, talked about cameras and photography and we were both kind of amateur photographers and wanted to get more into that scene. So talked about that and that was, that was pretty cool. And I went out and did some, like some pretty, pretty amateur basic, um, night photography and he taught me some stuff. I taught him some stuff. So it was, it was pretty fun. Um, the next day, you know, we're like, oh, well, well you know, we're, we're here. So we should, we might as well just, um, you know, travel together. And, uh, we did. So the, the entire day was kind of drizzly gray clouds, but we, we kind of just went around, went all over the city. Um, since we were both in, into photography, it was perfect because then we could just, you know, w- wander around and we're like, okay, well that, those purple shutters are pretty cool. Let's take a picture of that. Or, you know, how would you take a picture of that bridge? Like it was kind of a little, a cool little mini course. And, you know, we, neither of us were, were anywhere close to being professional photographers, but it was still really cool to have someone else that was, you know, interested in, in photography and like had an, had a nice camera and was okay. Well, this person is looking, looking at the world in a similar way that I am. He's not just like looking at the sites and moving on. So it is actually like, it's actually pretty beneficial to have him there. And, um, and he's, he's just a really, really nice guy. So it was nice to kind of hang around with somebody. Um, that night we wanted to unwind a little bit. So we, we found a, again, a pizza place and then, um, had, had some beers. So we're like, okay, well, let, let's get this, keep this thing going. So we found a next place and had some beers. And then we found a third place and had some more beers. Then finally found this, found this like place and we walked in, walked inside and there was no one there. There was a bartender and there was one guy at the, uh, at the, the bar and we walked in and the walls were covered with, you know, Polaroids of like all these different women, um, you know, ranging from like 21 up to however old, and they were just flashing the camera. So there's just bare-breasted ladies like all over the uh, the bar. And we're like, all right, that's a vibe. And so uh, I, I'll, I'll just call him Ben. And then so Ben and I went and uh, we're like, okay, well, let's, let's, let's get a beer. Served it in plastic cups. And then we went in, in the back and found a foosball table. 
set up residence for just kind of okay, let's play together, whatever. We were just you know like like any other person I've ever met with foosball, like just terrible. No one's ever good about good at foosball. Within like five minutes, there were these two young guys, like twenty one maybe, um, challenging us. You know, playing kind of dumb, being like, oh well, you know, we 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 would like to play. You know, can we, can we play you guys and. And as soon as we said yes, we're like, hey, well, let's make a bet. Like, you know, loser buys beers. And we're like, okay, well, sure. How can it, how good can anybody be at foosball? And we got our asses handed to us. It was insane. These guys hustled us so bad. And it was so funny looking back at it now because it's like, holy shit, I've never seen anybody that good at any, anything on a, on a table. You know, like, never seen anybody get that good at any, anything like that. And uh, these guys just killed us. And, like, they scored 10 goals before we even had, it wasn't, it wasn't even, like come come came close to being fair, and so we got got hustled, and and then we're like, well, this is freaking stupid. And then they're, like, I mean, so we're like, they're like, okay, hey, just calm down. So you buy us a beard, and then we'll buy the next round. So okay, well, that's fine. And so then we got to talking to these guys, and they, and they're pretty cool. And they were, uh, I I think what the situation was is that either someone they knew or the actual bartender behind the bar, which is also a younger guy, um, owned the place. And so they were there like every night. And so, um, and they're most of the people that took the pictures of those uh, young ladies on the wall. Um, and so there's no one there. I can't remember which day it was. It, was, it wasn't like a big Friday, Saturday thing. And so they're like, well, and then, so then more of their friends came in the bar. So it was like me and this Canadian guy I met on the bus. And then the bartender was sober. And then like these two guys, then it turned into like three, four. Then there's like five French guys, all young guys. They started buying, you know, they started buying us drinks. First, it was beers, and it was like shots. And they're like, "Oh wait, you never, you never been to France before? Oh my god, like you try this drink, try this drink. This, this is like the the epitome of like the French drinking scene." And they just kept pushing shots, pushing shots. And we're like, "Yeah, sure." And they kept on, you know, insisting that that that, that they pay for everything. We they didn't want any of our money, and we're like, "Sure." They they just wanted to show us a good time, genuinely. And, you know, at 31 now, I would be like, this is sketchy. What do you want out of us? But at 25 and, 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 and a new country and, like, not having a care in the world, I was like, free drinks? Hell yeah. Let's do it. We kept drinking, kept drinking, kept drinking. And then, then um, everyone kind of got bored because there's no one coming in, definitely no women of any kind. So there's a bunch of guys hanging out, drinking shots. And so everyone's like, okay, let, let's go to a different bar. And so the bartender's like, wait, before you guys leave, you have to have, you know, the Antichrist. And I was like, what the fuck is the Antichrist? And he pulled out this, this bottle of like red liquid that had like chunks floating in it and it had a busted ass cork in it. And it was, it was, it, the bottle looked terrible and everyone was like, oh man, yeah, this, this is like the real French stuff. And I was like, all right. And me and Ben looked at each other and like, well, if, as long as everyone else has a shot of it, we'll, we'll do it too. And everyone, including the bartender had a shot of this Antichrist and it was this, terrible spicy must have been like a pepper vodka or something like that it was awful it just burned the entire way down you could feel it in your gut just being like oh my god so you have like the pizza from earlier you have the beer from earlier you have all these shots now you put this antichrist on top i was like holy crap what a mess and everyone's like yeah let's go to the next bar and um we go like it's kind of in my memory it's like across the street but it must have been like a, a little a little bit of a walk and there are like five French guys plus the two of us. And so we walk into this like raucous, like party heavy yellow bar that was blasting French music. It was like a French bar. No one spoke English. I mean, everyone could speak English, but no one was. 
So everyone was speaking French. The music was in French. The bar, the, the bartender did only spoke French. And so we got more drinks poured out or pushed towards us. There's this big old burly guy that was definitely not in his 20s. And he came over and he's like, well, you're, you're Americans. And he came back with more shots. He lit one on fire, put it out on his palm and then drank it. And we all drank those shots. And it was like probably an hour or two. And I was like, dude, I have to get out of here. I am I'm spinning. This is bad. And like Ben looked way bad. Like he was like way about to puke. So we're like, thank you guys so much. We exchanged information. We all hugged. We were best friends forever. And we walked out into the night and we're like, oh, what the, what the hell just happened? What was that? And um, what that was was a piece of genuine um, French, you know, uh, this camaraderie and patronage, like they just, they just want to be our friends. Um, as far as I could tell, like, I mean, five years, six years later, and I, there's nothing, been nothing weird. So I didn't pay for one drink. Um, but we had at least, at least seven or eight or nine or 10, probably 10 shots plus a couple beers from insane. Looking back at that night, it was like, holy crap. We came back to our hostel, which had been empty before there were, there were the kind of typical big room four bunks, and no one there. And so Ben and I get back at probably three, four in the morning. And there's like, like okay, no one's here. And we're just drunk as shit. And we, we turn on the light and there's like a, a guy like pops his head out. Like, hey guys, turn the light off. I'm like, oh my God, sorry. And then we got in car to bed and it was like, oh my God, we are, this is not Kansas anymore kind of thing. Being like, holy crap, that was a, it's a drunken night. And um, next morning we... Um, let's see the next morning, um, we kind of had breakfast and, uh, kind of got, got our bearings slowly as anyone can imagine. And, um, I can't remember where Ben was heading. I think he might've was going to Paris right after that. Um, but I think he's going to a metal concert. And so, but my next stop was Lyon. And so, um, we had breakfast, had lunch and then took a few pictures and then we took off. Um, I got to Lyon again at nighttime and Lyon's a much bigger city than Toulouse. It's, uh, Definitely not as big as Paris, but it's a big city. And um, I, I remember getting off the bus, the cheap bus. That might have been one of my one euro buses, like literally a dollar to get from point A to point B. Because um, bus bus travel in, Par- or in uh, France was insanely cheap. I don't know why, but it was insanely cheap. And so I, I got off the bus and um, just put get put right in the middle of like this bustle, this hustle. And I think it was like, almost like a Friday night or something like that because people were off work and they were just like really getting after it. Busy, busy, busy. I kept getting talked to by homeless people trying to sell these like stolen watches. And um, I was like, no, just get to the hostel, get to the hostel. I got to this, uh, this like very affluent, very, you know, hip district. People like in, uh, you know, pea coats and, um, you know, suits and stuff sitting on the, the sidewalk and in like the brisk, brisk autumn air. Um, having really expensive dinners that I could not afford, and I knew I was in the I knew I was in the the Richie area because there's a McDonald's that looked like nothing I'd ever seen before, and they were advertising it's just, it's a it's a great deal twelve euros for a Big Mac it's like thirteen dollars if not fourteen fifteen dollars for a Big Mac meal I was like oh my god that's expensive, and it's like well I'm not even out here, and I finally found my hostel it's a pain in the ass to get in, um, and I, I get rang up. I go through this, you know, this like this vacant like hallway. I go up these stone stairs. People smoke a weed on the, on, along the way, um, and I get I get to this like big open floor plan. It's kind of like it looks like someone 
had had a really fancy apartment at one time and then someone bought it and then turned it into like a ramshackle hostel situation. But I walked in, it was like a bohemian dream. Um, and I walk into the, to the check-in area, a big open office. And there's, you know, the, t- the typical scene, you know, everyone's in their early twenties, people drinking wine, you have long hair, there's maps on the walls. There's like Bob Dylan on the wall. Um, and I, and it was offering me wine and it's like, I just need to get checked in before I do anything else. And I talked to the guy behind the counter. He's this good looking dude. It's like cool and suave. And, um, and I get checked in and I, you know, he goes, he goes to show me my room and it's like, I, I go past like these Greek guys hitting on this girl. I go past people like, you know, just like doing like arty stuff, you know, drawing, painting, that kind of thing, playing guitars. I get to my room and there's like this like six, six foot four Swedish guy playing a ukulele. There's like these really good, good looking girls that are like American and Canadian, all different kind of stuff. stuff. I find my bunk, which is the bottom bunk. I put my sheets over the, the, uh, the grossly stained mattress and I'm like, Oh, I made it finally. And so then I, I asked people real quick. I was like, Hey, is there any, is there any cheap market? I could buy some food for dinner. They told me, found the market, found some like, you know, bread or uh, sandwich making stuff, found some bread and meat and came back, took a, took a shower and I came back, and I came back in the room and it was like just super lively. People were drinking wine and like whiskeys, like, you know, guitars were playing and like the ukulele was playing, people were singing, we were like walking around and talking. And I, I talked to the Swedish guy across from me playing the ukulele and he's really cool. He's a um, guitar teacher in, in Sweden and he wants to do, he wanted to see the world a bit more. Um, right next to me was this guy, this super arrogant, like cocky American guy, like that was reading a neuroscience book and him and I talked about neuroscience and he was more doing like the more, uh, you know, far, uh, pharmacological psychology. I did my stuff in, in school more about consciousness and like the whole more philosophy of, of cognitive neuroscience. And we just got lost one another about statistics and like, uh, studies we read and studies we, we, we had wanted to do and did do in college and he had just graduated from college. Um, and it was really fun to talk about neuroscience in that, in that, uh, environment. Um, and then let's see. So then after like probably an hour of talking to people, the ukulele guy started playing louder and it's probably midnight this time. And then a, a guy brought in like a, a, a full size guitar. Then a guy brought in like something else. And then like a girl started singing and then like before we knew it, everyone was like vibing on this sound. And it was like, this is what France in my head is like. Um, just like this bohemian, you know, not paradise. That's way too far. But like this bohemian lifestyle place that embraces that lifestyle. Obviously, you know, France is a country like any other. You know, there, there are the poor, there are the rich, there are the, there's the rural, there's the city. But there, it, it seems like in my mind that, um, that, Paris vibe of the 1920s is always what I think about France. And even when I was in France and seeing that, that it was not always true, it didn't matter. That was still very much like in my mind. And when I, even when I got to Paris, I was like, this is what it feels like. It feels like that. And, and, and that night was so cool because there wasn't that communal dinner. There wasn't that, you know, communal, there wasn't much of a communal community situation, but for those few hours, everyone was so vibing and like, was so into that moment. People were sharing stuff. People were sharing their drinks. People were sharing their food. People were playing music together. People were doing talking about science together. It was such a cool vibe and such a cool atmosphere. And um, you know, th- the next day I I walked all over Lyon. I read. Um, I finished reading The Sun Also Rises. I started in Pamplona, and then I finished it along this um, along the river. 
the main river overlooking uh, this giant um, cathedral on the hill. I can't remember what the name of that is in Lyon. I mean, it might just be called the, the Lyon Cathedral. Um, and I walked o- over everywhere. I walked all everywhere. I saw um, Roman Roman um, ruins. I saw a Roman amphitheater. The first time I ever had that happen before. And I'd never seen anything actually Roman before that I you know, really noticed. Um, and, and I walked all over that beautiful city. Beautiful. The weather was perfect. I walked through a giant park. Some bookstores had really good food. But when I think of Lyon, I think right back to that first night in that hostel. And I said that for two nights, but like the first night was just magical. It was like a Friday night. Everyone was there to get extra loose. Like, you know, the vibe is super loose anyway in a hostel, but it, it was, everyone's getting like that extra bit loose. And it was such a cool atmosphere, cool experience. And it was just so much fun. Um, after two nights in, or two days in Lyon, I went to Paris. And so that was like, you know, everyone's, you know, bucket, like that's the, that bucket list item is going to Paris. And, um, I did that. And, and that was also one of those really cheap, you know, one euro or whatever, five euro bus trips. And I remember, uh, driving up there and the, the couple behind me were really cool. And, um, they're probably like in their mid thirties. And, um, the woman had, had grown up in Paris and she had married this um, this white guy. I, I can't remember, maybe American, maybe Canadian, something like that. Um, and they and they were going home to going home to meet her parents. And um, and she was telling me all this stuff like do this, do that, don't do this, do this. And it was such a you know gym to have her sitting there. And she's like a person that grew up in Paris. Um, what a crazy childhood. And we and it just kept raining, 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 raining. And we got off the bus, this rain. And I was like, I don't care. I just first stop. Eiffel Tower, um, you know, basic, right? And uh, so we get dropped off in this weird area, per the huge, um, and then I have to find the Eiffel Tower. So I'm just like, no, I'm not doing any kind of GPS. I'm, I'm just going to wing it. And so I start wandering through residential areas. I start wandering through like business areas. And then I see the top of the Eiffel Tower over these residential roofs. And I'm like, oh my God, there it is. And I start just walking as fast as I can. I walked down the uh, Champs-Élysées. Um, my French pronunciations are absolutely terrible. You can figure that out in the audio book if you want to. Um, but I'm going to try. I'm American, so we're going to butcher it. Um, Champs-Élysées, um, down there. Um, and I see it. And I start walking, walking, walking. And I get there, and it's like, oh, my God, holy crap. Oh, before that, I, I, I stumble across the Arc de Triomphe, which is funny because it's so damn big and so famous. But I've never thought about it being a roundabout. I'd never thought about that before. It's like it's like so many things, and you know, in in this trip have been like, oh, well, that's weird. And you and you just again, you realize how much of your memory or how much your perception of a city, a major city, is built on you know maybe one to a handful of uh, photographs. I never once thought about the Arc de Triomphe being um, a circle that's busy as hell. And I'm like, oh my god, there it is. Luckily, there's an underground area that you can go down and then pop up and you get away from it. But still, and then so I I, I see and by the way, because of the Paris attacks happening only days earlier, um, the terrorist attacks, there are armed guards everywhere. Men, women, bulletproof vests, big rifles, AK-47s and bigger, um, looking at everybody, checking everybody out. It is a, it is a secure scene. And so I get to the I finally get to the bridge. Before you get to the Eiffel Tower, I go over that. I'm like, oh my God, here it is. And um, 
that starts my night of just being like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I, it, it, I just, I just could not stop smiling, just taking, being taken, taken back, being like, this is, this is one of the most famous things in the world. And I'm here. I did it. I'm, I'm right here. And I had this crazy realization that in some weird way, I'm at the, the middle. I, I like, I hit the peak of my, um, my trip, even though, you know, it's pretty off center with the time. But it's like it seemed like Paris was like the the center point, the focal point of the entire thing. Like I hit the top of the bell curve, and now I have to go back down and then go home. And that all happened when I was like thinking about or right looking right at the Eiffel Tower and just looking at it, you know, you know beaming in the light or beaming at, at night. And they had the the red, white, and blue, um, French red, white, and blue um, for the Paris attack situation. And so that was really cool. And so then I started walking a couple of miles to my hostel. It was so cool because it was raining. It never stopped drizzling for the first three days of being there. But um, there's a movie called um, Midnight in Paris by uh, by Woody Allen. And um, it's a fantastic movie. It's basically one giant advertisement to go to Paris because it's like it's like two hours long and basically it centers around Owen Wilson's a writer and he, um, he has a he has a kind of a bitchy wife that's not very nice to him or to anybody really. Um, he's kind of a just bad person all around. And um, he's a writer. And then so um, at midnight in Paris, um, he uh, he can go back to the twenties. And so he meets all the people that, that are around, then Hemingway and and such, Joyce and all those guys. And so he uh, and so the, but basically the entire movie is a, a visually visual postcard of Paris. And, um, and, and one of the lines in the movie that stuck with me the entire time I was in Paris and the rain was Paris is most beautiful in the rain. And so it was this really cool thing because even though it was raining, it was cold. Um, it was, it was mid November. I just kept going back to that line in the, in the, in the movie being like, no, oh, Paris is the most beautiful. And it's kind of like the suck it up, enjoy it. You're in Paris, France. Like this is people's dream spot and you're here. So I, I ducked my way into like this, uh, this kebab restaurant with like, I was the only person there. Um, and then I kept walking and walking, walking, went, um, around the Moulin Rouge. Um, that was super lively cause it was like Saturday or something like that. And, um, then I, I found my hostel. It was like a hotel turned hostel, um, typical thing. Yeah. It was like three bunk beds. Um, it was me as the only vagrant, you know, homeless traveler, and then two couples, uh, like, like one couple guy, one couple was like, like two guys on vacation. And then the other one was like a, like a mom and her like teenage kids or something like that. And so I was the only like really backpacker of the group. And so it pretty much showed, um, the next day I was like, nah, gotta go, got to go to the Louvre. And so I walked in the rain to the Louvre. It was nice because it was like, I spent like four or five hours there. It was a long time and it was so cool. But the funny thing is, even though I, I think I appreciate art pretty well. I'm not an expert by any means. I'm not a critic, but I like art. Um, I have a fairly okay, you know, understanding of, you know, the, the history of art. And so I walked through here, walked through there. I saw the Mona Lisa, was unimpressed and was, I took a picture. Of this, so I think it's interesting because I'm, I'm far enough back where you see how tiny the Mona Lisa is. And then on both sides are these gigantic, beautiful Renaissance era paintings but yet this little tiny Mona Lisa is a thing that, that, that captures the world so 
pardon me, breaking this out. Um, and it was, it, it's so interesting looking at that picture being like, man, like everyone's on their phones looking at it, you know, but anyway, old, old man talk from a 31 year old, but, um, it, the Louvre was cool. Um, it was, wasn't amazing. It wasn't astounding. It was cool. It was, it was great. Um, wandered all over the hell. I wandered all over the Louvre down to the basement up to the top, saw all the, the, the key things, tried looking at every single room, took a lot of pictures for Alex about, um, about Napoleon's apartments, even though we were broken up at the time, but, uh, saw a lot of, a lot of Marie Antoinette stuff, took pictures of those for her. And it was just like one of those, like, okay, check out the, check out the list. Like I, I've been to the Louvre now. Um, then it, it was, uh, I, I got some food. It was late. So then I was like, okay, well let's go to the catacombs of Paris. And I had gone to the ossuary in Bjorno, Austria, you know, weeks earlier. And that one was cool because it was basically like a basement of a church that was artistic, had music playing. It was definitely, and there were only 50,000 people that was buried there, which is a lot, but still 50,000. Um, and it was very much an artistic representation of mortality. Um, it, it was very apparent that the people that, that designed the art there and that designed the entire tour the, their primary objective was to was to make you think. So that was my only other ossuary or catacomb I've ever been to. And so then I was like, I had a similar, you know, kind of mindset going into the catacombs of Paris. So I get to the catacombs of Paris. It's like this basically looks like a like a like a rundown bus depot um, to get, you know, I bought my ticket and he's like, OK, well, go down the circus. I go, 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 keep going, keep going, keep going. And it's cool because very quickly you get into like almost like a mine shaft situation. And there are like, you know, there are, you can see the, the shovel, shovel marks, you see the pick marks, you can see like the, the, the water, you know, running in. And it's very much like a, wow, we are under Paris. It's not like, oh, this is all brick and beautiful. It's like you're in, you're in a tunnel going down. And it seems like a long ways down and you start seeing bones. And one of the things I had, had to keep reminding myself is that the catacombs of Paris have approximately 6 million people, 6 million remains of people that died from, you know, a pretty, pretty big swath of things from plague to whatever um, in, in the medieval, in medieval times. And so you look at this place and you walk through it and there are just bones everywhere. And so again, what, what Borno's ossuary was with artistic and put together, and there's uh, statues, and there is like a theme. The Catacombs of Paris is there for to be utilitarian. It is because they had, from whatever reason, they have all these bones, and they have basically walls on either side of this corridor you have to wind through with skulls placed here and there, femurs and tibias, and all kinds of stuff. Um, and so it was it was great. I mean, I loved it. It was so much fun. Um, and not fun. Like, Oh, look at all these death, this death stuff. But like, just, it was like, it was a couple hours, three hours or what? I can't remember how long I was there. Just you walk and walk and walk. And it's not a fast thing. You have, you're, you're in it for a while. And I was kind of, you know, I was kind of around these, these two couples and they were probably in their thirties. One was in their thirties. One was in like their probably fifties. And they were, they were, each couple was handling it so differently. 
one couple, I, th- I think the younger couple, but I'll, I'll say it couples. So one couple was doing it like, oh, isn't this interesting? Like more like me, where it's like, man, mortality, thinking about life. You know, again, a quote from Midnight in Paris, like death is something all men must do. Um, you know, and, and like that facing mortality. And then the people behind me, I think they were older, were just like not, not doing well. Like they were kind of like, they started off being pretty good. They're kind of like, oh man, like, like, isn't death scary? Like, no, it's not scary. And it's like, oh, but you know, what, what are you going to do when you're dead? And it's like, oh, well, I'm do this. Well, I didn't know that. And so it's like this perfect example of like the people in front of me were handling it really well. I was doing it my own way personally. And then people behind me were kind of like, oh my God, this kind of like freaked out. Like, yeah, this is really affecting me. It was fantastic. Just so many bones, so many, it was such an interesting thing because in Bjorno, I, I learned that, you know, not always, but typically if you, if you're in, if you're in a medievals, you know, era, um, you know, bone pile, ossuary or catacomb, um, it's a pretty good likelihood that the, that red tinted skull means plague victim. Um, and so it's so interesting to look at, you know, a, a literally a pile of skulls from real people, um, that died hundreds of years ago. Some were like bright red. Some had a little bit of dull red here and there. Some were bright green with the algal growth. Um, it was dripping. It was wet. It was moist. Um, it just felt so much like, man, this is not an art. This is not a museum. This is this is a place where they, they had to get rid of these bones and these people because there's a freaking plague happening. So Catacombs of Paris, top notch. Um, definitely go there if you if you want to see, you know, like this be faced right in the face of mortality because... I said in the book where it's like Bjorno was like, oh, you know, isn't death interesting? And like, you know, it's, we have to do this thing, but isn't it, you know, ponder it. And the Catacombs of Paris is like, here's death. We're all going to die. That's what it looks like. We're all going to be just forgotten and just rot. And it's like, all right, that's something that you got to think about whenever you're uh, thinking about mortality. Go back to the hostel. The next day, um, I had heard about um, these two different museums. And I've always, well, always, since high school, have been a really big fan of, again, the 1920s Paris, uh, Paris scene. So one of my famous, or my favorite artists, paint, painters of all time, is Amedeo Modigliani. Modigliani, just a story, um, his, his entire life, the bohemian atmosphere, just all, all of Modigliani was, is amazing. And so I heard that there's a museum that was a lot smaller than the Louvre, but it had a really cool, a cool vibe to it. So I went there. Um, so the, the Musée de Lorangier, um, is kind of like a conserv, it looked like a, like a rich person's conservatory or that's not the word, the right word. I guess so. A place where rich people have like a greenhouse situation and they grow stuff. Conservatory. I don't know. Um, and, uh, I think it's called the Lorangier because it was like the, they grew, uh, orange trees there. I can't remember. Anyway, so you get there and that's a place of Monet's water lilies you know, uber famous, you know, why you, that's why people go there. And so there's, there's an entire like three or four chambered, you know, white walled observation deck that, um, that Monet's giant ass, like eight, 12 feet long. I can't remember how long it is. Big ass, um, paintings of water lilies are went there first. Astonishing. It's beautiful. You can get right up there. You can get within an inch of it. Um, you can look at the brush strokes. It's wonderfully beautiful. Fantastic. In the basement, um, there is a, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, Paul something. Um, anyway, he was an art dealer. 
back in the 20s and he collected a lot of a lot of the art these artists were making and then i think it was his museum but regardless um it he has a section of like basically his his study and all these amazing works you know climbing the walls and stuff in in the next room they're the artists so you have matisse you have Modigliani, you have picasso's primitive works you have uh, just a bunch of different people and all these names popped up and I was like, oh my God, these people are who I, who I like. They're the, the, you know, the modernist painters. Um, and just, they were just, it's wonderful. And so I was there for a couple hours. It was wonderful. Um, next on the list was uh, Musée d'Orsay, um, which is in a, an old train depot, which again, it's in Paris. So it's beautiful and old and wonderful. And in there is like this mixture of both. It had, you know, it had the older paintings. It had like the 20s stuff. And, um, there's an entire exhibit about, about Van Gogh there. It's the first time I ever actually seen a real Van Gogh in person. They had a few Van Goghs. That was awesome. Um, there, there was like a uh, a big exhibit um, devoted to prostitutes, um, but more importantly, the painters and the artists that use prostitutes as like their muses. Um, and that was severely cool, amazing. It was so much fun because not only was it a really good subject. Um, I've, I've been, you know, ever since I knew what they were, I was like, prostitution should be totally legal. Like these women should get, you know, medical care and everything. So I'm, I'm absolutely pro sex worker, pro prostitute. Um, so that's never been an issue. Um, but but just walking into this area and seeing people of varying ages, varying from like, you know, high schoolers up to like 60 years old and everyone's like, you know, looking at these nude women and it just, it's just really cool. It, it felt, again, very bohemian, very much like let's see these people that were that are working. This is their job. This is their profession. And these artists, you know, saw them as, as like, you know, not only people because that's what they were, but also just these these uh, these art forms, these these, uh, these muses. And um, it was so cool. And uh, and one of my um, are, are in that exhibit so many times. The artist was uh, um, uh, Tullius Lutruck. And, uh, he was super cool. He was, uh, he, he had a lot of health conditions. He was, he was a short man, like a, I guess, dwarf midget, s- small person. I can, I'm not sure what the correct term is short person. And, uh, there are so many of his, his works there of like pencil drawings and paintings. And, and he was earlier in the twenties, but he was, he, he was a really interesting person. And so I left, I left that, you know, museum exploration of Laurentier and the Dorsey being like, now that was a lot more fun than the Louvre. The Louvre was like a, you got to go. It's like, it's like a test. Like, okay, you have to go this thing so that way you get the culture. But it's like, I, for my money, the Lorenzier and the, and the Dorsey, I think were a package deal and it was cost less than the Louvre. So if you're in Paris, Lorenzier and uh, Dorsey. Um, I left that um, still raining, um, you know, beautiful, you know, it's beautiful in the rain, but damn, more rain, more rain, more rain. Um, I I went to a Greek a Greek restaurant, had had a cheap kebab, and my feet started hurting. And I was like, man, my feet feel terrible. Um, and I'm not sure I mentioned this in this podcast, but I had chosen um, like hiking boots. Sounds intense, but they were like hiking shoes for my my trip around Europe. I guess I figured that I that they would be useful, like you know wherever I went, but they were kind of overkill and they, they kind of just trapped a lot of the moisture in my feet. And so 
my feet started really hurting, like to the point where I was like, it was painful to walk. And so hobbling's the wrong word, but I, it, it was painful to get back to the hostel. I was like, man. So I, I, I passed the Moulin Rouge and I got to my hostel. And luckily no one was, was none of my roommates were in the room. I took my sock, I took my shoes off and my, and my socks and this terrible smell, but my feet were like ghost white, like ghost white, paper white. And um, kind of shrunk in and um, got like, were like very pruny. I was like, man. And as they warmed up slowly, um, just like hurt is so bad. Just hurt so bad. So I got, I, uh, t- I ran, a, ran a shower, you know, warm water on, on, on the, uh, the floor. And I got in and it just like these pinpricks, just like someone stabbed me with needles. And I was like, oh my God, shit. And so I just was, wasn't there for a while, just like warming my body up and my feet. And um, I got out and it was better, but still hurt. And then I, I walked, opened the door into my, my room and I was like, holy hell, it smells so terrible. It smelled awful. And I write in the book that it's definitely one of my lowest points in the entire trip. And, and when I really felt like a homeless vagrant was that I walked in and it smelled like feet so bad. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I washed my socks in this, in the shower, but now they're wet, stinking socks and my boots were terrible. Um, and I just got into bed and I went to sleep. And, uh, the next morning I woke up and there was everyone there and they were, they, they got punched right in the face with that stink. So if you were, if you were in Paris around that time in 2015, I'm so sorry because I just didn't care. Um, the next morning, my, it was luckily a beautiful day. It was my first sunny day, a few clouds here and there, but I did not care. It was not raining. Wonderful. Put my dry shoes, my dry socks on. I felt better, walked outside the pep in my step, and I was going to a cemetery. Um, in my true yeah, gothic, macabre, I don't know, fashion, I was like, hey, from the beginning, I wanted to go to the, the Père Lachaise Cemetery, which is arguably the most famous cemetery in the world, definitely the most fam- famous cemetery in Paris, um, for one reason. And so I, I got to Père Lachaise Cemetery, um, earlier I had, I had downloaded a map on my phone. And so I kind of, cause there's a bunch of fancy people that are buried there. Um, the first stop was Oscar Wilde and it went, um, Edith Piaf, then it went Chopin. And then my, you know, my, my homie, um, Amidia Medigliani, he, he's buried there. And then I got to the one I had come for, um, Jim Morrison of the Doors. I'm a huge, um, Doors fan, even bigger Jim Morrison fan. And once I figured out that Jim Morrison, you know, I knew he had died in Paris, but once I figured out he had been buried in Père Lachaise Cemetery, I was like over the moon. I was like, oh my God, I, I, I need to see his grave. And I've never been like a, you know, big fanboy of anything, but I, I did, and it wasn't really even about being a fanboy. Like, oh, I want to see his grave. It's just kind of like, oh, someone that was really impactful in my life, I can pay homage to in person. And so I, I meandered my way through. I got lost a couple of times, saw really cool tombs and graves. Um, and then I, I got to this, uh, this black wrought iron fence around this one site. It was Jim Morrison. And so, uh, my homage and, and p- people had paid homage in a lot of different ways. Um, people had left, you know, I climbed the fence and had left shots of different things on, on, on his, on his, uh, tombstone, his big tombstone. Um, most people had, uh, had, had adorned his plain black wrought iron, uh, gate fence with like, you know, really colorful, uh, bracelets or necklaces or, or just string of whatever. 
And so I, I've been thinking about it for a long time. And so my homage to the guy was uh, to play my favorite song of the Doors, um, The End. Um, but there's a particular um, uh, rendition of it, um, Live at the Hollywood Bowl, um, in 69, I'm pretty sure. And it's, uh, it's like 17 minutes long, and there's a moth joke in the middle. And it's just true Jim Morrison fashion. It's like the epitome of Jim Morrison. And so I put my headphones in. Um, and and I, I just turned it way up and I just stood there and looked at his grave and was like trying to be in the moment so hard for 17 minutes. And it was so cool. It was, it was a lot of things came to my head. It was like more of a meditation. Um, again, not super fan, but just this, this, this person had a, had a huge impact on my upbringing, you know, like from high school to college and everything. And then was part of the reason why I wanted to go to Europe in the first place. And so there's a big culmination of all this different stuff. At the end of the 17 minutes, um, it was cathartic, um, these people, and no one, had, no one was around, um, which is pretty cool. And then right after the song was over, this couple came over and I was like, okay, you can have this space. And I left. And, um, and then I didn't, I, I, I kind of frantically walked here and there. I went to the Sacre-Cœur, which is a big cathedral on a hill. And that looks out over all of Paris. And I hurried down to, the Eiffel Tower again, I went down to the Louvre again, I went to here and there, all, all the major sites. Um, from Hemingway, I learned that there are these really cool bucanistas, these um, these wooden, they're all green for some reason, but these these wooden green uh, little used booksellers along the sign. And um, I went to a few of those and I tried to find some cool stuff. I, I Again, if, you, if you're this far into the podcast, you know I had a tiny little backpack, so I couldn't get a lot of souvenirs. And so I... I got these really cool little little tiny souvenirs from my loved ones back home I wanted to give. And just it had a really good time. Just wandered here and there. Uh, finally found uh, the, 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 uh, the, my train station. Um, I got a Paris newspaper from my, my now mother-in-law. And um, started reading that. Or not reading it, looking at the pictures because it was all French, French. And I got on the bus, or got on the train. Um, it was a beautiful day. And I just started heading north. And, um, the, the night before, um, I had, uh, I was sitting in my hostel drinking some French wine and, uh, I was, I booked my ferry from the tip of Denmark to the east of Iceland. And so that was in three weeks. And so, like I said before, the Eiffel Tower and Paris and France in general seemed to be the, 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 the focal point or the middle point of my journey, even though it wasn't like literally the middle and time wise, it felt like it. It felt like now I was turning the corner. I was going up because I, because again, I had to go to Iceland to get home because that's where I bought my ticket from. And so when I bought that ferry ticket from Denmark to Eastern Iceland, I knew that that was now I'm, I'm on, I'm on the home stretch. Like literally I'm, I'm going to head home. And so I still had three weeks left. Um, but it just felt so cool to be like, okay, well now I have this adventure to look forward to. Now I have a time frame. It's not this just totally ambiguous thing I had for the past two and a half months. So now I actually have a thing to get home to. And so the train went north, and I entered into um, Luxembourg, and that's the next the next uh, chapter or next discussion. Um, I called it Benelux because it's uh, that's the not acronym I guess, but sub, the, the way that people say it is Belgium. Netherlands and then Luxembourg. So that's next. That's chapter 16 in the audiobook. Um, like, like it's the beginning of this, uh, this, this episode, um, I figured out this really rigorous 
um, kind of grueling schedule to get the entire audiobook completed by the 31st of December, which means we're going to, you guys are going to have a lot of uh, podcast episodes just flying at you. So I have one coming out um, tomorrow, which is the Sunday, 13th. And then this one I'm going to schedule for, you know, Monday. So there's going to be a lot. Like every couple of days, there's going to be just things flying at you. Um, and then once December 31st happens, it's like, oh my God, I'm done for a while. And then I'll start doing some more stuff by a little break. But um, if you like this podcast and you like to, you know, you like to hear it or hear me ramble on for 48 minutes now, um, there'll be more. A lot more. So you're going to have a lot by six, six, seven times two. So 14 episodes um, coming or 12, 14 episodes coming to you before the 31st. So hope you really like this podcast. Uh, anyway, thanks again for listening. This has been really fun. I really enjoy it. And France is so much fun. Don't need me to say that, but France is great. Um, next up is Luxembourg. So uh, thank you. <laughs>